Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by BioTill Cover Crops. BioTill Cover Crops provide innovative solutions to growing problems with a complete line of cover crops engineered to scavenge nutrients, improve water infiltration, stop erosion, rejuvenate soils, improve your bottom line, and keep you profitable. Call 541-928-0102 today for one-on-one local consultations and recommendations. Today, I'd like to introduce Megan Anderson, field agronomist with Iowa State University Extension. Megan will be discussing cover crops and water hemp. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Well, to get us started, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Megan? Yeah, I'm a an extension field agronomist for Iowa State University, and I'm one of 11 of us across the state, so I serve nine counties, and it happens to be in the central portion of the state. You know, definitely a generalist as an agronomist, but my background is in uh, weed science, and my research when I was in grad school was looking at cover crops and weed suppression, so this is a cool topic to be talking about today. I bet. Let's go ahead and, and jump right in. Talk a little bit about why water hemp in particular has become increasingly troublesome to growers in recent years? Well, there's a a handful of reasons, but probably the primary reason that it's become more challenging in, you know, just the recent decade or so to control is because of its sort of ability to stack up herbicide resistances. And so we're, we're now at this time where Uh, We don't just have water hemp that's resistant to maybe one or two herbicide groups. Now we have water hemp that's resistant to more like four or five, six herbicide groups and on a more common basis across, you know, the Corn Belt and certainly throughout Iowa. And that just, you know, given that herbicides are our primary method of controlling weeds, certainly in the middle of the season, toward the end of the season, we try to get some good residual that's going to, to keep those weeds at bay. And and water hemp has just been especially good at overcoming that. So that kind of gets to my next question is, is it just that resistance factor that has made water hemp so difficult to control? Or are there other factors at play as well? Definitely other factors at play. Water hemp you know, all weeds have certain characteristics uh, that may th- make them more or less challenging for farmers, right? So like giant ragweed is is a really big weed. It doesn't produce all that many seed, but it jumps out of the ground and it, it gets ahead of things early in the season. And um, there are some other things changing biologically with it. And water hemp is the same way that that water hemp has certain characteristics that make it challenging for us to manage. So it's not particularly big or aggressive, uh, but it has a very long emergence pattern. So uh, we may get really, really good control early in the season, and most people do, uh, but it escapes because it escapes a lot of our management because uh, much of it is germinating in, in June and potentially even into July. And that makes it really hard Uh, for us to manage when we've got a crop growing out in the field as well. Uh, Another thing is that water hemp produces a lot of seed. Uh, So on the order of potentially hundreds of thousands of seed per plant, which means even if you get really excellent control in your field, it doesn't take very many plants to cause a big problem that's going to persist for future years. 
And so probably the last big reason that uh, water hemp is just incredibly challenging to manage is because of genetic variability in the population. So uh, it produces separate male and female plants. So you can think of them kind of like people that reproduce 100,000 or so seed at a time, right? So there's constant genetic uh, variation happening in the population and exchange of those genes. And that just means that the population that you dealt with this year you know, it's always going to be a little bit different in future years. So that that just makes water hemp real hard to to manage. So you mentioned that sometimes growers can have good control early in the season, but maybe not later in the season. Typically, on average, when would you say during that growing season, when do growers first maybe start noticing water hemp a presence there in the the cash crop? Well, it it highly depends from year to year, but we would normally expect to see, I'd say, emergence of water hemp by probably the first week of May or so in Iowa. So usually right around the time or probably shortly after our crops are planted in a lot of cases. But when people really start to notice water hemp is is when it has kind of escaped our herbicide programs. And so normally I'd say that uh, first to second week in June is when we, we would really notice water hemp's presence out in the field if it's there. Okay. And so probably most growers are familiar with water hemp, but for those who might not be, what characteristics should they be looking for that might clue them into identifying a weed as water hemp? Oh, that's a very good question. Water hemp is one of the weeds that I always refer to it as kind of, it's nondescript. It's hard to describe. And when you see it, you just kind of have to know what it is. Um, So the amaranths in general usually have a, you know, kind of a a long skinny with maybe wider in the center leaves, like a lanceolate type leaf, or perhaps we would call it like an ovate or egg-shaped leaf. Um, They often have sort of a reddish uh, tint to uh, either the stem or perhaps the leaves even. Um, And water hemp in particular is hairless. So if you're looking over the plant, it shouldn't have any hair on it. The leaves themselves are going to have we call it an entire leaf margin so they should be a smooth leaf around the edge they're not going to be wavy or have teeth or anything on them all that to say water hemp is really a pretty nondescript plant and so the most important thing is identifying like water hemp palmer amaranth and redroot pigweed or the three common amaranths from each other because it's very easy you know once you get used to seeing amaranths to say well that's that's an amaranth but it's a little bit harder to distinguish the water hemp from Palmer and, you know, water hemp from red pigweed, et cetera. So knowing the fact that water hemp is hairless is one factor. And then Palmer amaranth and water hemp are both hairless. So then we have to figure out how do we ID Palmer from water hemp. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully we're in an area where we don't have any Palmer and we don't have to worry about that. But that usually is left toward later in the season because it's just so incredibly hard to identify them. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that herbicides are 
one method that many growers use to combat water hemp. Uh, what are some other tactics that growers can use to try to rein that water hemp in a little bit? Herbicides are, are definitely the primary way that we would try to manage water hemp, but uh, there's a lot of other small things that we can do. So like cultural type weed management practices. So narrow rows is one way, especially because we know water hemp comes in uh, so much later in the growing season that with soybeans in particular, or any crop that we can grow on like a narrow or row spacing, uh, we can increase that crop competition. Uh, other things, making sure that we're growing crops that are vigorous, we can alter planting dates. Uh, another big one, as far as a cultural practice, as of recently anyway, is is using cover crops and trying to get some wheat suppression out of the cover crops. Um, there's a whole host of other practices that we might use as well that are more um, either mechanical or just preventive type practices, right? You know, we, we move a lot of weeds from field to field, probably on combines. And so there's a lot of focus now looking at how can we um, manage those weed seed late in the season to either um, prevent them from being returned to the seed bank in the field or prevent them from moving from one place to another. So there's a lot of other things that we can do. But of course, you know, the herbicides are something that we're still going to rely on really heavily. Sure. So you mentioned earlier that water hemp is a prolific seed producer. What is it about water hemp that causes it to produce so much seed so easily? Well, it's it's definitely got to be a genetic factor, right? The amaranths in general produce a lot of seed, but um, some of it has to do with the way it allocates its resources. That's probably one of the most important things that we we see water hemp and it's a very, very small seed. The plants are very, um, I'd say spindly, you know, they're not particularly aggressive, but they seem to put a lot of focus in that seed production and given enough space and area to grow, they can produce just astronomical numbers of seed. It's really pretty impressive. You know, if it's not in your field, it's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you mentioned that cover crops are becoming a growing tactic that uh, growers can use to um, try to suppress water hemp. What are some examples of how cover crops are being used to mitigate water hemp? So for example, here in Iowa, we have some farmers who've been using cover crops for uh, quite a long time, primarily cereal rye, because at least in in this part of the world, uh, it overwinters really well. We get more consistency with that cereal rye, and it's incredibly aggressive in the spring as far as its above ground growth. And so, uh, the best method that people seem to be having a lot of success with uh, here in Iowa so far would be. Um, after corn harvest or before corn harvest, seeding cereal rye and making sure that they're getting a really good even stand of that cereal rye across a, a field and then allowing it to overwinter. And then in the spring, there's a lot of different ways that people are going about it. But uh, the moral of the story is letting that rye get a lot of growth on it above ground. And so that means 
letting that rye grow probably until the third week in May, maybe even a little bit later, as late as probably the first few days in June, um, terminating that rye uh, and basically allowing that the sheer biomass of that cereal rye to suppress weeds in general, but primarily small seeded species and late germinators like that water hemp uh, in our soybeans. And so since soybeans are our big weak spot so far anyway, as far as managing water hemp, um, it seems to be a at least a fairly effective method for those people who are really into adopting it. Okay. So I know that cover crop rotations or crop rotations, including cover crops, are also an effective way to manage water hemp. What would be some examples of including cover crops in a crop rotation um, that might make it more effective against water hemp? Well, anything that we can do to change up the timing of our practices, right? So water hemp succeeds so well because we plant our crops in April and May, you know, and we harvest them in September and October. And that pretty well fits perfectly within the growing season for that particular species. So anything we can do to change up and disrupt water hemp's either growth or seed production. And so the big thing would be if we're going to plant our uh, annual row crops like corn and soybean, anything we can do to allow a lot of biomass for the cover crop to accumulate before we plant those or underneath the canopy of those crops that would be incredibly helpful in suppressing the water hemp. But the other big thing that some people are actually looking at if they can find a market is taking the cover crop and saying, hey, you know, I was going to use this as a cover crop, but I have a cash crop opportunity with oats, rye, wheat, whatever it may be, and disrupting the life cycle of the water hemp by having a lot of that growth there, that biomass above ground early in the spring. And then not only that, but they're coming in and they're harvesting it in um, maybe July. And so that's absolutely disrupting the life cycle of any water hemp that are there because they're going to uh, probably prevent it, anything that's growing from producing seed. And it allows you to get in at a different time of year and try to manage any water hemp that comes up after uh, so there's a lot of opportunities with cover crops or with small grain, you know, covers grown as a cash crop. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor. BioTill cover crops provide innovative solutions to growing problems with a complete line of cover crops engineered to scavenge nutrients, improve water infiltration, stop erosion, rejuvenate soils, improve your bottom line and keep you profitable. Call 541-928-0102 today for one-on-one local consultations and recommendations. And now back to the podcast. When maybe growers are considering using cover crops to help control water hemp, is it a good idea to maybe consider a combination of herbicides and cover crops, or would those two work at cross purposes? I think the great majority of farmers have to use them together, 
uh, herbicides and cover crops. You know, herbicides can work well alone. Uh, cover crops have potential, like a really good stand of cereal rye. I mean, it has potential. There are people using it in organic systems without the herbicide and finding some success. But I think being able to put those two things together and use the cover crop to help the herbicide. Um, and I've referred to the cover crop as sort of a, it's kind of acting like a pre-emergent herbicide, right? You're, you've got it out there early in the season. You're suppressing those weeds before they ever get out of the ground. Um, and then you're coming back in with herbicide maybe after uh, you've terminated the cover crop or um, approximately the same time that's going to provide you some further suppression into the season. Uh, I think most people are going to find that that is a far more successful system. Uh, but maybe on occasion, they would be able to do the cover crop by itself and get sufficient weed control. Talk a little bit about why water hemp is particularly becoming so resistant to so many different types of herbicides that growers are trying to use on it. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I definitely mentioned the genetic diversity in water hemp, and that's probably uh, one of the biggest factors is that those genes are constantly being exchanged between male and female water hemp plants. Um, and potentially moving right from field to field, location to location, uh, via the pollen flow and gene flow uh, for that species. Uh, but the other big thing is just that we rely so heavily on herbicides to control water hemp, right? So uh, herbicide resistance in a population of water hemp, water hemp could have a trait for it, but it will it would never matter to the water hemp or to us if we didn't try to use herbicides to control it. So. That's the other big crux issue is that, that, yeah, water hemp is really good at developing herbicide resistance, but we are also relying really incredibly heavily on herbicides and pretty much solely on herbicides to control it. And so, obviously, we're going to create problems by doing that. So, in, in your experience, have you seen that there are certain methods of tillage that uh, either help or hinder um, fighting water hemp? That's a really good question because tillage can uh, be an important tool, uh, but it also can, uh, you know, it doesn't really stop us from having long-term issues with water hemp. So a lot of our pre-plant tillage that we do in most systems doesn't really do anything uh, for water hemp aside from uh, move seed around in the soil, right? Because it's that tillage is happening far earlier uh, than water hemp is coming up. It's it, it may be a very effective control method for certain other species, but probably not doing all that much for water hemp, except when we think about how the seed is basically being stored in the seed bank in the soil, seed on the surface of the soil is going to be very subject to predation from little insects and mice and anything else that might be at the surface looking for some food source. Uh, it's also going to be subject more to environmental degradation, right? So at the at the soil surface is right where, you know, we get freeze and thaw, we get, you know, mold and, and all kinds of other issues happening. We get a lot of moisture there. And, and so that in a no-till environment, that seed, there's a lot of seed right there on the surface, 
but it's also going to be subject to all these other things. So when we come in and we bury that seed, we mix it up in the soil. That makes it less subject to predation. It, it makes it less subject to germinating in any given year because water hemp is really regulated by sunlight. And so um, if it's buried very deep in the soil, it's not going to be able to germinate in any year. But that also means it has less of that activity going on, less degradation, and it probably is being stored longer. If we're looking at trying to actually control water hemp with tillage, there's probably two things. The first of which is after somebody has a really bad failure to control their weeds. Um, we talk about using like a moldboard plow for one year to essentially flip the soil over because in that case you can bury that seed deep enough that it will not germinate the next year and come up and um, cause you significant issues. In the south some fields have have done that. Some farmers have done that in fields where they've had Palmer amaranth control failures. But that's like a one-year solution because when that seed's buried that deep, it's not decaying either or it's decaying very slowly. So if you go and have another failure, you can't just flip the soil over because you're bringing all those problems back up. And probably the only method of, uh, of mechanical control of tillage that really does much for controlling water hemp would be if we have uh, in-a-row cultivation. Right. And in most cases, people have gone away from that because their herbicides have been effective enough that they've been able to use that post without some of the detrimental issues that come with interrow cultivation. Okay. So, how much does water hemp impact cash crop yields? Um, and, and how, I guess, how serious is it to really get water hemp under control? Water hemp has pretty big potential to affect cash crop yields. There have been some studies out of, I think, Kansas uh, that found that, you know, high water hemp populations can cause really significant yield loss in both corn and soybean. So far, I'd say that most people don't notice the yield loss issues, or at least on, you know, a really significant numerical basis here in Iowa. However, the big concern is, is that if you don't control water hemp one year, um, you can kind of tolerate its presence. It's not affecting your harvest. You don't think it affected yield, um, but you've added a bunch of seed to the seed bank. And that genetic diversity means that it's more likely that you'll have potential for herbicide resistance issues. And you are kind of incrementally building that population over time. And so that's probably the biggest issue is that maybe right now water hemp is not impacting yields but we are allowing it to persist. We are increasing the population of water hemp out in the field. And then we're increasing the likelihood of herbicide resistance, not developing herbicides fast enough to overcome this. And eventually, potentially very soon, we will be at this point where we are going to see, you know, 30, 40, 50% yield loss potential with water hemp and not have an effective way to control it. And that's a bad place to be. We don't want to reach that point. For sure. If cover crops are being used to manage water hemp, is it better for growers to use a single cover crop species like cereal rye or a cover crop mix with multiple species? So there's a lot of reasons to use cover crops. And 
if we're looking just at weed suppression, really it's getting a lot of biomass out in that field, right? You want a lot of uh, cover that's going to suppress weeds. And so if we're looking at water hemp, cereal rye is kind of the gold standard for that. And so um, everything I've, I've seen has shown that having a mix doesn't necessarily hurt the weed suppression. It can if, if you don't have very much of that grass out there that's going to be providing you a lot of biomass that's going to last a long time. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help. So really cereal rye is probably about the best route that we can go or another grass species that's going to produce a lot of above ground biomass that can persist into the season. Okay. So how much impact can cover crops have from a yield perspective? I know you talked about, you know, seeing significant problems with yields due to water hemp. How much of that yield can cover crops win back? Well, I mean, potentially, you know, if the cover crops eliminate the water hemp as an issue, right, then then you've won 100% of the yield back because what we've seen is that at least if we're trying to manage it in soybean, we've seen that we can manage big cover crops with virtually no effect on soybean yield. So that's a huge, that's a huge win all across the board if we can work that system that way. Okay. So um, as I'm sure you know, cover crops can have a big impact on soil health. How does that soil health impact influence weeds such as water hemp? That's a good question. That's a tough question. Uh, So what I would say is that I I don't know that I would say that the soil health is going to directly influence uh, the weeds, right? The, The weeds are primarily influenced by the fact that we have a certain type of disturbance in a system. Uh, so the the cool thing I would say is that that over time we know that that those soil health improvements do happen, and so what we should see is that our crops are more resilient in tough years, right? Droughty years, we've got better soil drainage for the wet years because the cover crop roots have been there, and we've got good soil structure, and so what would be really cool to see, and I don't know that anybody's documented this, but I could foresee a time where we can kind of incrementally gain back yield on our row crops by having a more resilient row crop that can uh, survive better in droughty years. Maybe it, uh, you know, we see better internal soil drainage in some of the wet areas of the field where normally the crop doesn't do very well. And in those cases, if we can have a more competitive row crop, we can better outcompete things like water hemp. So I think of areas of fields that drown out a lot. I don't know that we're going to eliminate the drowning out, uh, but maybe we can gain back some of the edge of that prairie pothole uh, and we have a crop that yields better and then we just have less water hemp uh, or less weed pressure in those areas. And so that'd be really cool to see if we can, if we can get to that point after using cover crops for a long time. Okay. Where can our listeners go for more information about using cover crops against water hemp? So 
there's a lot of universities that are that are doing really good research on this, uh, but you can always uh, feel free to contact me uh, at my email address or phone. Uh, we also have a really good uh, extension crops page at iowastatecrops.extension.iastate.edu uh, where we post a lot of really cool work that people are doing and uh, good reminders for uh, management of both water hemp and for management of cover crops, as well as the management of the two of those together. And so that's a really great resource for, for anybody who is looking for more information. Great. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much, Megan, for joining us. Once again, I want to thank BioTill for sponsoring this podcast. To learn more about BioTill, call 541-928-0102 today. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.